Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Authorities have arrested more than 20 people and opened nearly 80 criminal cases in connection with the demonstrations. But one trucker we spoke to is adamant that the public's perception of the rallies is broadly positive. This is how one news outlet covered the Freedom Convoy in February 2022. Bouncy houses for the children, free food and coffee, music. More like a winter carnival than a protest, but a protest it is or as Ottawa police and city officials describe it, an illegal occupation. These segments look and sound like any other newscast. Canada's top doctor has weighed in on the debate, saying COVID can be dealt with in, quote, a more suitable way. She's urged the government to review... said the government's extremely negative response to the movement has only widened the divide between the public and the state. But these aren't regular news broadcasts. These clips are from RT, Russia's state-controlled TV network. And yes, we, RT, were later blamed for covering this protest more than the mainstream media, who were flat out ignoring the Freedom Convoy protest. But RT didn't just cover the convoy more than the mainstream media. They covered it more than any other media outlet outside of Canada. They're not independent media. So when you see RT covering something that extensively, you can kind of see that that's a priority to the Russian state. But why would the Freedom Convoy be a priority of the Russian state? What they've become extremely good at over the past uh, 10 to 15 years is identifying the most polarizing issues in Western societies and then exploiting them to pull us further apart. Yes, there was a degree of Russian involvement in kind of inflaming the issue. I don't think they were supporting the convoy. They don't usually have a side. It's just kind of chaos. I'm Taylor Owen. And I'm Sapria Devetti. On this season of Screen Time, we're trying to figure out how we ended up in a world where facts are fluid and your reality is a reflection of your ideology. From TVO Today, Antica Productions, and the Center for Media, Technology, and Democracy at McGill University, this is Screen Time, the battle for reality. So you can hear me okay? I can hear you great, yes. Perfect. I'm setting up to record with a journalist and researcher named Caroline Orbueno. Last year, Caroline uncovered evidence that Russia had been meddling in the Freedom Convoy. I do recognize the irony of being an American talking about foreign influence in in Canada. In a lot of contexts, I wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable speaking about it. But the reasons I do are because a lot of times what happens in the U.S. ends up happening in Canada a year or two later. Caroline is now one of the most prominent disinformation researchers in the world. But when she was working on her PhD back in 2014, she was looking into something else entirely. My colleagues and I were studying risk communication about the Ebola epidemic. 
we were looking at Twitter, uh, Instagram, and we were seeing strange overlaps in themes between Ebola-related communication and then messaging about semi-automatic rifles and anti-refugee messages and these topics that just didn't seem to go together. And I couldn't at the time make sense of what was going on. I just knew something was going on. And we later found out that essentially what we were seeing was the beginning of what would become Russia's 2016 interference campaign. Caroline started finding more and more connections between the Trump campaign and Russia, connections that continued to emerge well into Trump's presidency. She noticed that whenever a negative story about Trump was about to make news, there'd be these weird surges in online activity. In the middle of the night, Hashtags like Media Lies Again and Things I Trust More Than CNN would start trending, seemingly propelled by Russian bots. I was hooked at that point. It was fascinating and it was terrifying. Caroline's online sleuthing made her a bit of a star on social media. She amassed nearly half a million Twitter followers and drew the attention of Donald Trump himself, who blocked her on Twitter. And then I kind of never stopped. These topics opened doors to other topics, and I just kept following them. Now, years later, those doors have led her to the Freedom Convoy. So in terms of foreign engagement, I looked specifically at whether Russia was engaged with and or attempting to influence the narratives around the convoy. Caroline says there were several signs that Russia was meddling in the convoy. The most obvious one was the coverage from state-controlled media like RT and Sputnik, which the U.S. State Department has called disinformation and propaganda outlets. They sent reporters on the ground to interview convoy participants and organizers. We spoke with the Freedom Convoy's Facebook page administrator about the situation. The censorship out here is absolutely unbelievable. The mainstream media out here does not tell the real story of what is going on. That reflects some degree of interest as putting the convoy as a foreign policy priority on the part of the Russian state. But there were more subtle clues, too. I also looked at proxy websites that are connected to Russian intelligence but are not directly instruments of the Russian government but their coverage mirrors and oftentimes is almost identical in wording to what you will see on RT and Sputnik. Is that how you know they're a Russian proxy site? Well, the U.S. government has identified them as proxy sites through their connections to Russian intelligence. They've actually had intelligence personas posing as writers. The least concrete, but maybe the weirdest evidence came from messaging apps like Telegram. There were a number of Telegram groups that initially started as convoy groups, and they devoted themselves to putting out news about the convoy and the routes. And then, when Russia invaded Ukraine, many of those groups suddenly pivoted. Some of them kind of maintained a little bit of a weird middle ground between like half convoy content and then also bringing in 
conspiracy theories that circulate heavily in Russian propaganda circles. So these would be things like framing the war in Ukraine as a denazification of Ukraine. Others then, though, actually started to post direct press releases from the Kremlin, and some of them were posting in Russian language. I feel like that bears repeating. Messaging groups devoted to the Freedom Convoy suddenly and inexplicably started posting Russian war propaganda, some of which came directly from the Kremlin. It almost seems too weird and too obvious to be true. But then it happened on Twitter as well. The groups that were most aggressively promoting anti-lockdown protests over the course of the pandemic, really overnight on the eve of the Russian invasion, those accounts started tweeting Russian government narratives. They had nothing to do with COVID. They had nothing to do with the lockdown. They were only focused on Ukraine. And that was, quite frankly, shocking. This is Marcus Kolga. He's the director of DisinfoWatch, an organization that monitors the spread of Russian disinformation. They've been doing this for decades. You know, back during the Cold War, the Russians were primarily restricted to using mainstream media, newspapers, television, radio. And it wasn't as easy to inject those narratives into our information environment back then. But um, really, that's transformed now. The Russian government has built out a constellation of proxy sites through which they push out their disinformation, their propaganda, inject that into our information environment. And there are millions of Canadians who are now exposed to those narratives thanks to social media and the Internet. Marcus acknowledges that it's hard to find definitive proof that Russia was meddling in the convoy. But taken together... The coverage from state media, the proxy sites, the strange social media activity, and a decades-long history of interference all point in the same direction. I think that the Russian embassy, the Russian government, did all that it could to intensify the crisis. And we know this was happening. We saw RT sending reporters on the ground to Ottawa. We saw RT platforming radical voices within that movement that were calling for the removal of our democratically elected government. And the objective, like I said, is to undermine and subvert our democracy and, quite frankly, break down the cohesion of our society. That's what they've been doing for the past hundred years, and they're going to continue doing that. Again, it's not necessarily because they don't like Trudeau. It's because they're trying to delegitimize democratic government and they see protest movements as a way to do that. The fact that Russia was trying to meddle with our democracy might not surprise you. Since Donald Trump's election in 2016, the term foreign interference has been synonymous with Russia. But when Taylor spoke to Caroline Orbueno, she said that might be changing. So you mentioned that RT had the most convoy coverage of any international outlet. Who had the second most? The second most was Fox News. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. Democratic politicians across this country are looking north to their friends in the ruling party of Canada. And what they see there scares them. This is one of the many segments Fox News did on the Freedom Convoy. 
Canada's working class has finally rebelled after years of relentless abuse. Truck drivers are threatening to topple Justin Trudeau's creepy little government with their big rigs. And they may succeed, actually. I think that Fox News essentially wanted to take what was going on in Canada and bring it to the U.S. Tonight, a group of American truckers announced they will begin a nationwide truck convoy in this country starting next month in protest against Joe Biden's vaccine mandates. Because of the partisan nature of Fox, I do think there was probably somewhat more of an agenda to cause trouble for the Biden administration, to stymie the government from being able to get things done, and so that it would basically look like incompetence and propel this narrative of Democrats not being able to handle governing, basically. They're completely panicked. Working class people expressing their opinions, that's not allowed. So Joe Biden, taking a page from Justin Trudeau, his friend to the north, has already set the Department of Homeland Security to work to shut them down. We'll be covering that in some detail. There is some drama ahead. When we talk about foreign interference, we're often talking about China, Russia, Iran, and there's this sense that there's some state actor out there that's producing propaganda. And that is true. Is that really the way that foreign influence is really acting? Angus Bridgman is an assistant professor at McGill University. He's also the director of a research project called the Media Ecosystem Observatory, which looks at how the information we consume affects our attitudes and behaviors. We're incredibly influenced by the United States. We're incredibly influenced by their cultural products, but also by their news and information. Specifically looking at like the COVID-19 misinformation stuff, we see a far greater influence from the south of our border. It's not orchestrated, state-approved propaganda, but disinformation that is produced and propagates there inevitably finds its way north. And what we saw in the United States during COVID-19 is intense polarization and politicization of the virus that continues to an extent to this day. And that had a huge impact. So if there is foreign influence, we really should be looking at the United States as sort of the primary source of that. Although the Americans may have been more influential, Angus says Russia was probably trying to influence the convoy too. Russia's trying to sow distrust in institutions, trying to produce polarization, trying to encourage people to see politics as black and white. And that operation, that information operation is ongoing. But Angus makes one thing really clear. Just because Russia was involved in the convoy doesn't mean that people were there because of Russia. The people who were there in Ottawa as part of the convoy were Canadians who felt passionately about politics and were engaged in politics and I believe had a sincere belief in the virtue of what they were doing in their their moral cause. And while Russia maybe played some role in polarizing them, they weren't there because of Russia. And... There is this tendency to sort of say, oh, they were just Russian agents. We should dismiss their arguments. And I just don't think that's the right way we want to go. So the convoy likely would have happened with or without Russia. But what about a more obvious example of interference? What exactly happened with Trump then in 2016? Like, wasn't that an influence operation that worked? Yeah, so so causal research in this space is really difficult. There was a, a great paper published, I think, just earlier this year, from some folks at NYU that were looking at the Russian disinformation campaign in 2016, probably sort of their most successful campaign as they would identify it, right? And 
that team finds minimal effects. They find minimal causal effects. And their argument is sort of based on the idea that direct Russian propaganda was only seen by a very small number of Americans, and they don't find any effect on attitudes or behaviors amongst that group. It's important to remember here that just because there aren't clear causal effects, that doesn't mean Russia's influence campaigns aren't working. If you're having disinformation populate the news constantly, then that causes people to be distrustful of the news. That causes people to be distrustful of one another. And so even the fact that Russia is engaging in disinformation and we're talking about it makes us doubt what is real, what is not real, what information can I trust. And so there is some success there. I think that the Russian state is going to consider the money that they spend on their disinformation campaigns really well spent at weakening the West. They're probably pretty happy (laughs) with their performance so far. So what does all this mean? Research like that study from NYU suggests that disinformation isn't brainwashing us. It's tapping into legitimate political grievances and making our already polarized discourse that much more divisive. We saw this play out at the Freedom Convoy and in the anti-vax community online. Two movements that felt like they didn't have a political voice and were using conspiracy theories to make sense of the world. All of which is to say... Our ideas about mis- and disinformation might be a lot more complicated than we initially thought. Back in 2016, using the terms mis- and disinformation kind of made sense. We'd say, well, disinformation is deliberately created information by people trying to cause harm. Misinformation is my mum retweeting it without realising it's false and not meaning any harm. And we went, oh, yes, that works. What a lovely typology. That looks nice in a journal. This is Claire Wardle, who you heard from last episode. She's been at the forefront of disinformation research for years. But actually now, increasingly, I spend time in communities where the people creating and sharing information do not fit neatly into those categories. So if we take, for example, somebody deep into the anti-vax community, somebody who spends all day reading academic literature, she comes to different conclusions to me, but it's not that she's uninformed and she is sharing information because she thinks she's preventing harm. She believes that she's the one that has the information that's going to prevent children from being harmed by vaccines. Now, I wouldn't say that she's deliberately sharing false information to cause harm. And I also wouldn't say she's mistakenly sharing information with no means of causing harm. They don't fit my disinformation category or misinformation category. So I'm now trying to throw that typology out. It's not helpful because I think by focusing on intent and being pretty naive about that, we fail to understand the ways that people feel connected to their communities and that what they're sharing is around their identity. They are performing that identity and it's about feeling heard and being part of something. It's not the deficit model. And that is where we've made mistakes. It's much easier to blame the troll on Facebook or to really blame the platforms entirely without saying, well, that person who's really reading the academic literature on vaccines and drawing different conclusions, is she being persuaded by conspiracy theorists or is it the failure of scientists to communicate effectively? Is it the failure of government public health agencies to make her understand why vaccines are safe? I would argue it's much more that. But it's the last seven years, oh, it's not our fault. It's those other people polluting our information ecosystem. It's because those conspiracy theorists have converted all of those people. So to me, zooming back out in 2023 and looking at 
really the role of so-called trusted agencies and organizations and institutions and our failures, I think, is one of the ways we need to look at ourselves when we're thinking about the next steps. When Claire talks about the need to re-examine institutions, she's talking about academia, public health, the scientific community, and the mainstream media. And while these are obviously very different entities, they do share a fundamental weakness. They all struggle to engage with the public in a meaningful way. We've got so much to learn from whatever we want to call it, the disinformation ecosystem, the conspiratorial space. I mean, that space is participatory. People feel a real sense of belonging. It's all the things that the so-called trusted information ecosystem isn't. Ours is top-down, linear and hierarchical. And if the person at the top says the right fact, it will get reported by the New York Times and then everybody will behave as such. But fundamentally, to this point, we have to stop saying, let's study the misinformation. We need to study the narratives. How are people talking? How are they making sense of the world? I mean, this is about loneliness. It's about the failings of, you know, the glue, the other types of glue in communities that have disappeared over the last, you know, 50 years. This is not just about information. It's about emotion, performance, identity, community. It's about all of these qualitative factors that, again, doesn't get funded as much, isn't as sexy, isn't as easy to do. But that is the only way we get through this. So where does that leave us? This combination of institutional failures, social media echo chambers, and disinformation has left us more polarized than ever. And it seems to be getting worse. Angus Bridgman again. A few years ago, we would have said that there was sort of a relatively consistent anchor set of news organizations. And that, that is simply being eroded. We are now existing in sort of our own little micro-information ecosystem that feeds us, to an extent, information that we want to hear and is increasingly polarizing us. When people speak about polarization, what they're often talking about is differences of ideas. And we actually want differences of ideas in politics. It's healthy to have differences of ideas. That's how you come up with creative policy solutions. That's how you navigate the world. So that's not a bad thing. What is often referred to as a bad thing is what's called affective polarization. An affective polarization is a dislike of those who disagree with you. And so I have this idea, you have that idea, that must mean that you're a bad person. It's no longer just a difference in ideas. It's a difference about you know, whether or not you're a good person. Do I want my kids to be friends with your kids? Do I want to have a coffee with you? And increasing affective polarization sort of erodes the fabric of society. And there is some pretty good evidence that that is on the rise in Canada. Every single issue that you care about, whether it's climate, reproductive health, mental health, whatever it is, anything, is now so fundamentally polluted in terms of how people understand the information space, how they understand each other. But I still don't think we're anywhere near the ability to counter the problem. And I think we do know what's at stake, which is authoritarianism, violence, and a complete failure for people to lead healthy lives. And that's terrifying. Claire Wardle's warning might seem a little melodramatic. But the reality is, this kind of radical polarization it's already happening. This isn't the usual, oh, you know, we're in a bad spell. These are things which, like, they're so enmeshed in our current democracy that 
I don't see them as being sustainable in the long term. So something's going to happen. The world's run by a bunch of evil friggin' pedophiles that have no good intention other than to destroy humanity. And we are doing everything in our power to fight back. That's next time on Screen Time, the battle for reality. The Battle for Reality is written and produced by Mitchell Stewart. It's hosted by Sapria Dovetti and me, Taylor Owen. Our associate producer is Emily Morantz. Mixing and sound design by Mitchell Stewart and Philip Wilson. Our associate audio editor is Cameron McIver. Our executive producers are Stuart Cox and Laura Regeer. Lori Few is the executive producer of Digital at TVO. Shariar Tatvidi is the managing editor of podcasts and digital video at TVO. If you want to know where we got our information from, we've included an annotated transcript in the show notes. Mm-hmm.